0: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 1, 5, and 10-gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
2: Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. C Y M B I O T I K A dot com.
1: When Charles Booker was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives, he didn't follow the young politician's playbook, serve a few terms, and then plan his next steps. Instead, he went right for the Senate the U.S. Senate, Booker challenged one of the most powerful politicians in the country, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. In this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Representative Charles Booker talks about losing his Senate primary and founding a new advocacy group in Kentucky, Hood to the Holler.
3: Hey Charles welcome to the show
4: thank you sir it's good
3: to be with you good to be with you I'm sorry uh, there was a little bit of excitement on the way in but uh but I'm glad you're here glad you're home
4: <laughs> determination makes the difference it's good to be here
3: I love that I love hearing that I believe in that now uh, uh where exactly are you right now are you uh wh- where are you I'm not even gonna guess
4: you tell me yes yeah, so I'm in my hometown here in Louisville Kentucky and uh you know we, we got a lot of work going on and a lot of issues we're facing in the city so I'm I'm right here on the ground trying to keep the fight moving forward. And, and what is it like there? You know, it's funny. I've been talking to people not
3: only around the country, but around the world about this COVID moment, sheltering in place, etc.
4: What's life like for uh, for you there in Louisville right now? It's tough. Uh, you know, saying that is an understatement. Um, we have been dealing with historic levels of unemployment. Um, a lot of folks have seen the bottom fall out for them. And, you know, we've had some trying times we have... Uh, created some more infrastructure at the state level to try to connect with folks and make sure they have the supports they need during this pandemic. Um, But I've received so many terrible stories, heartbreaking stories in my legislative office. And a lot of people are are looking around and saying, what's next for me? How am I going to make it through this? And I commend our governor for continuing to show a lot of leadership. And it's been a privilege to work with him and the legislature to try to push for relief. But it has been very difficult. And uh, we're bracing now, and clearly our leadership at the federal level is not responding as if they see the the struggles that we're facing.
3: And and, and be, uh, Charles, be even more explicit, because I think you're right that not everybody everybody's seen everything. What, what kind of heartbreaking stories are you hearing? I, I won't make you give me an hour of it, but even if you just give me a couple of examples for folks who, again, may not be seeing it themselves, what are you hearing?
4: You know, I, I could give you an hour. I could give you much more than that. Um, but yet, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have had their businesses closed down. Um, folks that have tried to uh, invest in local business to create a local economy, have had to close their doors, and so people are out of work. Um, you know, folks that are losing their homes. Um, you know, we have an issue with homelessness in our city, and there is a lot of despair. Um, question on how to get access to food during this pandemic. Uh, in the western of Louisville, where I'm from, it's a really big geographical area of the city, and Louisville is still one of the most segregated cities in the country. We were already dealing with high unemployment. We were already dealing with industries that have left and job opportunities that have been gone and never returned. And now it's being compounded. And what we're dealing with with Brianna Taylor, um, the all the concerns around um, racial justice and and reforms in our in criminal justice system, all of it ties back to the roots of inequity that are really being exploited and not even exploit, exacerbated uh, right now. So this is a difficult time. Um,
3: uh, Charles, take me back for a moment, if, if you don't mind, just to make sure people get a little bit of your backstory. And really, honestly, so that I get a little bit of your backstory, uh, where did you grow up? And again, some of these I think I know the answer to, but but in some cases, I'd rather honestly hear it from
4: you. Where did you grow up? Where did you come up? Absolutely. And uh, I'm a proud Kentuckian through and through. I'm from the West End of Louisville. Uh, and you know, as I mentioned, uh, it, this city is very segregated, but there's a, a very powerful through line. Um, there is a strong sense of family um, in our city, and that is certainly true in the West End. Now I live in what has for years been the poorest zip code in Kentucky. Um, and it's a powerful point to raise because when people outside look at Kentucky, you see the poverty, you see the struggles, but you very rarely see communities like mine in, in the hood. Uh, people tend to define Kentucky in a certain way that doesn't really include someone that looks like me. Uh, but this is an important point. And, you know, I come from a very big family. Um, I'm one of at least 71 grandkids. So <laughs> I stopped counting. <laughs> so we have a small town of a family. So I'm not exaggerating there. <laughs> and it taught me community. You said, you said 71. And now that's it. I stopped counting a couple years back. It's more than that because everybody's <laughs> having a good time. But uh, so at least seventy-one. Yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of us running around here. And uh, like I said, I learned the sense of community from a very early age because I had to share
3: everything. And and how many kids uh, in your family? You're one of how many? So funny
4: thing about that, I'm an only child. So my mom, my dad were just one of the few that actually only had one child. Everybody else was, you know, just. Proliferating <laughs> there, but I'm an only child, and so my cousins are like my siblings, and uh, I'm really close to them. And they were all fired up for my run for U.S. Senate, and uh, really proud of uh, the community, the sense of community that was put in me from the very start. And so, because you were an only child in a
3: much bigger extended family, were you a little bit of the golden child? Coming up, what were you like if uh, if I had met you back in the day?
4: You know, I got some of that energy. I got some golden child energy. Um, it wasn't always easy for me because I got to go home and have my own toys sometimes, you know. Um, but I, I really appreciated the fact that my grandparents were so central um, in my my upbringing. Um, so both my parents dropped out of high school, and my mom dropped out to be mom number two because my family is so big. And, you know, growing up under uh, ministers in a household, my grandparents, my grandfather was in the military um, and he was running his own business in the community, fought for desegregation. Uh, My grandmother was a leader in in our church and they put a lot of uh, good values in me of how to connect with people on a personal level and how to activate my faith to push for change and how to fight back. And I carry all of that with me right now.
3: And, and so what were you like as a kid? Were you, were you quiet? Were you loud? Were you uh, out on the ball field? Were you, uh, were you reading? Like, like, who was young Charles Booker?
4: You know, I never shut up. Uh, that is, has that is definitely been a common for me throughout my life. I'm the one that talks. You would hear me in class. Uh, you know, I would finish my work first. And so I'm the one that's talking to everyone, trying not to be a distraction. Now I use that for good. Um, love sports uh, come from a, a family of athletes and uh, musicians my mom is a singer and you know so creativity um expression uh those are uh, traits and, and attributes that i really gravitate to and i'm a storyteller um that's something that i, I honestly i get that from my granddad too just always talking about uh, the broader narrative around things and um that was a big part of my campaign, telling stories about Kentuckians about family.
3: And so, to stay there for a minute, 'cause I'm a big sports fan, so I recognized your high school right out of the gate. That that's a pretty well known high school in Kentucky and around the country. If you're a sports fan, how did you end up at uh, at that at that at that uh, prestigious private
4: school? Well, so I went to I went to Louisville Male High School, and you know, if if you know much about football in the city. You know, regularly we'd be at the top. Uh, Now I say that because my wife went to the rival school. She went to Manual, so (laughs) so we both put our small T-shirts on from high school still, talk trash to one another. Uh, But I was bused to uh, to that school. So I, you know, I mentioned from being from the West End, um, Jefferson County has a system of busing, and so I'd be on a bus ride two hours going and coming to take me across town to be able to go to this. Um, quality school because the schools in my neighborhood don't get invested in. And all of those things still exist now, which which is why I'm so connected to the work, because it's part of my actual story. And did, and did
3: you think about politics uh, that early on? If I had met you as a high school junior, senior and said, Charles, what are you thinking about in the future? Would you have told me politics right out of the gate? Never,
4: never. <laughs> now, now, now that I think back, I was thinking about politics all along, but I didn't know I was. You know, I was looking around at abandoned homes in my neighborhood and, and I'm off about this. Why are things this way? You know, we don't have places to shop in my neighborhood. I'm fussing to my mom about why don't we have these amenities? You know, our infrastructure is crumbling. I realize now that I was talking through all of the dynamics that people in positions of, of policy making and budgetary decisions um, engage all the time. and the light bulb went on for me to get involved in politics once I went to law school. Um, I wanted to argue the laws, civil rights law, I was working in bankruptcy. And some of my mentors were explaining to me about policy. I didn't even know about politics then. Uh, But once I realized that you can actually make the laws instead of just argue about them, um, there was no looking back for me. I I found my purpose and I'm running full steam in it.
3: And and did you win your your first race for elected office?
4: So I, so I won my second race. Um, my my first race was for state senate, actually, against one of my mentors, uh, someone I deeply love. Uh, but I told him the changes that I'm fighting for are not personal. This is about us transforming our future. I've had cousins murdered the last four years. And I ran that race, learned a lot from it, did not win. Uh, but the run for state house in 2018, um, was a success. And I became the youngest black state legislator in Kentucky since the very first one. And um, it, it has been a very humbling, inspiring and exhausting experience for sure. Well, well, now take me back
3: though to running against your mentor because that's a little Obama-esque. Obama's yeah. first run for Congress was against one of his icons and one of his mentors. Uh, he also lost uh, uh, that race, but came came back to do good things. Uh, tell me a little bit about making the decision to run against someone you respected, loved, knew. You know, it, it was
4: something that, and I'm, everything I do is led by my faith. Uh, I mentioned both my parents are ministers, and, you know, I believe that we can do better in our community. And a lot of my frustrations are about how do we make sure that people that are making decisions for us are connected to that. And um, the state senator uh, is actually one of my mentors, taught me. To continue to disrupt and to continue to push for change and i'm looking around and saying well you know what i'm going to take your lessons and i'm going to run and what really triggered it for me uh, was the birth of my second daughter so i have two girls those are my bosses uh, my dance partners and you know my second daughter was coming into the world and i'm saying well what do i do different you know if we just keep doing the same thing expecting things to change then we're the definition of insanity and I don't want another loved one to die. I want things to be better for my children. So I'm going to go ahead and take this leap. And, um, you know, he he wasn't happy about it, but he he respected where I was coming from. And we spoke on issues. Um, I spoke from the standpoint of a young black man and, uh, you know, inspired a lot of people. And although I didn't win the race, I learned a lot about politics. And uh, so I'm not averse to a challenge. I'm not averse to a fight. That's for sure.
3: Well, you know, you come from the home of Muhammad Ali, Cassius that right. Clay, the the original fighter. Um, so I'm not surprised that, that you don't run from a fight. But but talk to me about that idea of losing and coming back. Because Charles, even though you say it with a smile, it's hard for most of us. It's hard. If you love something, if you want something to happen, if you pour your heart into something and then it doesn't work out, you know. You know what can happen to most of us, and, and yet you came back. How did you decide to come back? Was, was it easy for you to, to not give up? Like, why did you run again
4: after losing? You know, what you said is so true, and, and it does hurt. It's crushing. And, you know, I just ran for the U.S. Senate, which I know we'll talk about, and a lot of the lessons from that um, carried me into this race, where I'm challenging again another, uh, you know, longtime incumbent. Um, And, you know, what I would what I would tell folks is if you're connected to your why, if you know why you're showing up and you know what you're fighting for is bigger than any one race, um, the pain just helps to strengthen you. Um, And when you go through a campaign, the people you connect with, the things you learn, you grow. Um, And so there's no way I could say I actually lost um, because it helped to sharpen me. It helped to open my eyes to. So much possibility, and it inspired me to keep pushing. Um, and I think one other thing is, I don't do this for politics. I, I didn't run because I wanted a title. I want things to change, and they—they they haven't changed, in my opinion, the way we need. So I'm gonna keep fighting for it. And whether I'm in elected office, whether I'm picking up trash on the street, whether I'm marching in the streets, um, I'm gonna show up and do everything I can for my community. And so, as long as folks do that, you know, we'll keep we'll keep falling forward. We'll keep moving forward.
3: Charles, you have special stuff in you, and it's interesting uh, being here with you and being in your presence. Um, I think what I appreciate is you have a level of positivity in your life, uh, despite what's happened to your cousins and others, that I can tell fuels you from the inside. Um, it feels like there's an inner peace in you. Am I over-reading that? Is, is, that, is that real? And, and
4: and if it is real, where does it come from? You know, I'm humbled for you to say that, and, and it is real. Um, I believe this work that I'm a part of is bigger than me. And I do feel like I'm an arc bender, you know, the type that Congressman John Lewis spoke of. Um, I, I, I feel my ancestors in me, you know, and, and I just, I, I, I walk in it, I own it. Um, because I believe we all have a part to play in shaping the course of history, her story, their story. And, you know, a lot of my my trauma, a lot of my pain um, really just fuels my testimony. You know, I'm, I'm a type one diabetic, too. Um, I became a diabetic in school um, because we didn't have a lot of money on food stamps and free lunch. Uh, there were times we couldn't afford it. My mom couldn't afford to refill my prescription, and I would ration my insulin. The pain from that, the idea of possibly dying because we didn't have enough money, uh, falling into diabetic ketoacidosis. I've done that as an adult because I chose to feed my daughters, which I'm going to do every time. Um, I use those stories to tap into the truth that a lot of people feel, um, because the change comes from us. And, and if we can lean into those, those stories, that, those testimonies, the trauma, we can help to make sure they don't affect generations to come. And I'm just committed to that work.
3: Charles, can poor white Kentuckians hear you when you tell those stories? Or is there too much of a gap uh, based on race that, that even though those may be stories that resonate in their own lives in some way, are they not able to hear those fully?
4: Well, what your question defines exactly why hood to the holler is so powerful because yes, they can hear them. And not only can they hear it, they see themselves. They're inspired by seeing someone like me stand up in a community where we are often invisible. And we've inspired a big new coalition that I'm saying is how you dismantle the Southern strategy. How do we redefine politics to keep black, white and brown communities separated from one another, urban and rural communities separated from one another? And there was so much power in just showing up in the places where they said, hey, Charles, you're black. Don't go there. I would go and I'd tell my story and then I'd listen and we would always see how much we have in common. And I'll tell you this, the people of Kentucky and I think people across the country already for these types of new coalitions, because so many people are seeing the bottom fall out. Um, and this is the moment we have to seize, and I, I know we will.
5: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this.
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Charles, I have to tell you that when I saw you start to come on my social feed, uh, it did something good to my heart. And I couldn't really articulate it, but I knew that I somehow felt better seeing you on my feed. I would say about a month before your election, you started coming on my social feed a lot, and I liked seeing you, and I looked forward to it. I almost never looked forward to seeing an ad, but I looked forward to seeing you on that. Did you hear that reaction from many other people, and did it only start once you started actively posting on social? Or or give me a little bit of color, of some of the reaction you got from from other people, both in Kentucky and maybe outside of Kentucky.
4: Yeah, you know. So what we saw and what the whole country saw in the last couple of weeks before the election is what exists um, and what has been happening um, in Kentucky and in my interactions across Kentucky for years. So none of this was surprising to me. It was just incredibly humbling to see it um, on display at such a high level. We were able to tell a new story that a lot of people didn't know existed. Um, I was a director of Fish and Wildlife here in Kentucky. I've worked all over the Commonwealth. And, you know, Hood to the Holler was a rallying cry about how we have so much in common from the hood and and where I'm from and in rural parts of Kentucky, the hollers of Eastern Kentucky and going out west. And we were speaking to the fact that people didn't think we saw one another, but we do. And we realize we're not fighting one another and we're not going to let politicians and these big money interests continue to keep us divided when we know that together we can do anything and you know i've done a lot of work over the years working in every level of government and builds a lot of relationships so a lot of people weren't surprised to see this out of out of me and this type of campaign but i think nationally a lot of folks were like wait a minute what's happening in kentucky that is not possible in kentucky and uh, we're showing very clearly that yes, it
3: is, and we're not stopping. So, so, so before I come back to we're not stopping, tell me why you think you didn't win. Give me the honest, honest, now that you've had the benefit of experience, why didn't you win, and what would you do differently next time if you had the exact same
4: scenario? You know, there's really only one true reason that we didn't win, and it's money. Um, we were up against a historic level of money in a campaign more than any uh, in a Senate primary in our history, and it really defined the narrative from the beginning. A lot of people didn't even know there was a primary, and a lot of it was because we were getting blocked out. You know, but we worked through it. We were organizing through it. We were creating new pathways for people to get involved in politics that had never done it before. We were running a turnout campaign in Kentucky at a moment where no one thought it was possible. And, So considering all that, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, We ran into, and we all did, into a pandemic that really helped to stifle a lot of the momentum on the ground that we were building. We were having events with hundreds of people across Kentucky in ways that you're still not seeing now. in this general, the media didn't see it and the national audience didn't see it because no one was paying attention to us. Um, But we faced that pandemic and we pushed through it. And then the height of racial tension, I think helped to shine another light on our campaign and on my message. uh, Because Breonna Taylor's name is not just about her, it's about all these structural issues that have been ignored for a long time. And um, leadership is about being ready in the moments when you need it most. And so I'm humbled to have been able to step up into that moment and say, this is what we've been fighting about, y'all. And now people see us, and so we're gonna make sure that uh, we continue to lead the way forward. But, But Charles, let me push you, and I'm pushing
3: you from a place of love, if I may. When I look at Beto, who came close but lost by a little bit. When I look at Stacey Abrams, came close, lost by a little bit. Andrew Gillum came close, lost by a little bit. As you've said, policy matters. It, it, it has real impact in real people's lives. And so winning and losing matters. What would you have done different? Like, like I hear you. I hear, I hear that you're not going to stop. But I also believe you that if you had six years in the Senate, now, it would make a difference in people's lives, right? So, so what would you have done differently? Because I've been looking to hear that, and I want to hear from Progressive what they would have done differently, because running a good race but not winning, I'm not sure that that's what's needed in the moment. So what would you have done differently?
4: Yeah, and, and I realize, thank you for, for pushing. Um, I realize that I'm in a unique spot as a current legislator that's built a lot of these coalitions that weren't used to being activated against the big money candidate. Um, and so I was sort of able to leverage all of the work I've done over the years to put pressure on these folks, like our, our unions, because I've been on the picket line. I've, I led legislation to repeal right to work and, and support labor. It made it hard for them to block me out like the big money interests would have liked. But considering your question and digging a little deeper, I think one thing that I would have done differently is started earlier. Um, you know, we, we launched a campaign, um, with an ex- well, the exploratory committee, um, in October of last year. And I did that to do my due diligence really because I knew I had a vision that a lot of people didn't see yet. And I wanted to go across Kentucky, share my idea and really help build some support because a lot of people again, didn't think it was possible to challenge, you know, the, the DSCC's chosen candidate. Um, But looking back, and what I would tell folks moving forward, when you feel that it's time to go, go. Run. Um, Do the work of building your coalition. You know, study. um, Make sure you have your your T's crossed. But go. Um, I think that's part of what we could have done to help wake folks up a little earlier. But I'm proud of the journey. Man, I'm proud of it. it. this was, this is, 2020, good lord, 2020 has been a decade of a year for everybody. And for us to be able to, to step in the middle of this storm and come out of it, now when we started the race, we were down up 50 points. And by the end of it, everybody knew that our campaign was the one that was winning. And, you know, time ran out on us, um, historic levels of, transition in our uh, election process you know there was one voting location in jefferson county Um, jefferson county has the metropolitan area has a million people Um, all of these changes were just making it difficult for people to figure out okay how do i vote what do i do we weathered all of that Um, but yeah if we could start a little bit early i think that would have helped as well Yeah. Helpful to hear. Uh, um, Charles, also look
3: back for me a little bit because, again, you're in a very blessed position and people can learn and grow from your experience. What are the two or three most interesting things you've learned over the last year, not only of running for office, but, but all the things that have happened over the last year globally, nationally? Like, If you were to go back and try and teach younger Charles, what would you tell him? What are the two or three most insightful things? And maybe not the things that are kind of the classic things people would say, but kind of the things that like only a dad would tell to his daughter, like really wanting her to know. What what would you go back
4: and tell? You know, one thing I would tell a younger Charles and what I tell my daughters now and I tell everyone now is, don't be afraid, don't be ashamed of who you are. Shine your light. Um, One thing that I've learned during this process and being a legislator is, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes, and again, when I was looking to get into public service, people would say, well, Charles, you do realize you're Black. You know, you're, you're trying to lead in Kentucky. And I felt a lot of that. You know, but when I would go into those rooms and I would just be me, there was always love. There was always a response of togetherness, of inspiration. And what we ignited in the campaign was just a, the biggest example of that. And so I would tell everyone and the younger self, don't be afraid of who you are. Speak your truth. But do it from a place of love, do it from a place of humanity, and, you know, your light will make a difference. Um, I think one of the things that really blew me away the most is um, there's always a notion. You know, people say Kentucky's a red state and we get defined and whether it's red and blue and all of that stuff. Um, But when you go peel those politics back and you reach out to folks, you'll be surprised. I, I was canvassing in some areas where there were Confederate flags. And, you know, there was some signs that made me a little uneasy. And I went up to one door, uh, knocked on this, knocked on the house, uh, home for this uh, little old lady. She opens the door with her robe on, little white lady. I thought she was about to let me have it. Uh, but I'm like, you know what? I'm here for a reason. I'm going to tell you why I'm here. So I was explaining that I, I support a Green New Deal and and why, and you know, that I believe everybody should have health care. And she rears back with her robe on. And she starts telling me how excited that she is. She's like, you know what? You're right. We need Medicare for all. We need a Green New Deal. People should go to college for free. Nobody ever listens to us. And it was the most powerful thing that I've ever experienced. And, you know, don't sell people short. Don't
3: sell people short. That's another lesson. I I love that. Who did you meet along the way Charles that either uh, informed you, inspired you? Because you probably have a much broader network today than you did even a year ago or two years ago. Who was the most intriguing person or two you came across?
4: Um, So at the state level, um, you know, I definitely get a lot of inspiration uh, from Senator Georgia Powers, uh, the first first black woman, a person of color to serve in our state legislature. Um, And then also Senator Gerald Neal was someone that's actually my mentor that I ran against. I've learned a lot from him, which, you know, we definitely, I can come back and we can have another... Uh, series on that, too. Um, but, you know, I think about Maddie Jones, a uh, civil rights leader in our community that marched with Dr. King. Uh, she's still around and gives me wise counsel. And, um, you know, broadly, I've called myself a good troublemaker for years, um, since I was a teenager. And it was because I was inspired by John Lewis. Um, I took it on, and I, I, I welcomed the idea that I'm going to be a good troublemaker. And so to see him uh, take that passion into Congress and continue to be a voice of bringing people together and not backing down on the issues of structural racism and inequity, um, that still means a lot to me. And when he passed, um, I hope we all feel this, but I certainly felt the responsibility to grab that torch and to keep pushing forward and causing good trouble. Um, but yeah, the list is is really big. Shirley Chisholm is another one. Uh, barrier-breaking dynamic leader. And uh, one last one that you probably wouldn't expect, I'm not, I don't think we're related, we claim each other at this point, but Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, uh, when he was mayor, uh, one of the things that he did that inspired me uh, was he was camping out in the areas where there were high crime. So he used the office of the mayor to go to the streets and set up his office in the streets. And just that dynamic of leadership Always resonated with me. So I give some love to Senator Booker.
2: Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great tasting, all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of
3: Let me hit you with a couple of of rapid fire questions that I want your immediate reaction when you hear each of these. Um, I say Mitch McConnell. You say what?
4: Evil. I want more. I want more. You want more? Terrible. Um, I mean, he, he is everything that's wrong with politics. He is everything that's wrong with Kentucky. He defines it. He profits off of it. He laughs to the bank while we die. And beating him is not just about getting rid of him. I don't care about him personally. I hope he fares well in his life. We need a lot of progress in Kentucky, and we don't need politicians that exploit division, that weaponize hate. So, he got to go. Got to go. Have you met Mitch McConnell before? I've met him. I have not spoken to him. Um, A lot of us haven't seen him up close. Uh, So, hopefully, we get some new leadership that'll see us differently one day. Uh, Next rapid-fire question.
3: The last time you
4: cried... Uh well, <laughs> I cry so much now. Uh, give, let me say last week I don't think I've cried this week. <laughs> we cried so much on the campaign trail. And what made you cry? You know I, I'm a very transparent person. I, I'm very vulnerable. Uh, I'm, I tell my story a lot. I talk about my mom a lot. All the sacrifices she made, going without eating so I could eat. And you know when when I open up and people open up as well, it's just a very powerful moment and. There's nothing wrong with crying. I've cried on the House floor a couple of times, too. I was yelling at folks to quit trying to take away the right to vote and make sure we stop passing legislation that will increase the chance of black and brown people being killed in the streets. Um, there's a lot of pain, and I tap into that to tell the story. Next. I don't think I'm crying today, though. I...
3: <laughs> we'll wait and see. We're not done yet. uh, yeah. uh <laughs> <about> <laughs> I say Brianna Taylor, and you say what? She matters.
4: We matter. Um, that institutional racism, inequity, um, are at the heart of why we say her name, and that nobody should have their door kicked in and be killed in their home by the agency they pay for to protect and serve them. And,
3: and why is it taking so long for them to charge those officers?
4: You know, it's it's a combination of contractual issues, um, it's a combination of uh, the, investi- the investigations and there's a federal investigation taking place as well it's with the attorney general um, who I was pushing on to immediately conduct an independent investigation. And part of it is the, the reality that when our institutions are at fault, bureaucracy slows down justice. And a lot of times justice is delayed or denied altogether. Uh, Whereas if anyone else in any other capacity kicked someone's door in and killed them in their home at night while they were in the bed, they would immediately be out of a job and they'd be looking at a whole lot of other things worse than that. Um, So some of it is just the reality of the reforms we have to make. And so what what do
3: other Kentuckians who you talk to, and I probably mean white Kentuckians, when you have this conversation with them, because I think almost anybody who had a daughter, has a sister, is that person? If, if what happened to Brianna Taylor had happened to them, I can't, I can't imagine people not being able to see it differently. But what, what, what does the conversation sound like there in Louisville, there in Kentucky, when you have the conversation with friends in the legislature, with with just other citizens? Like, what do they say? Do they say it is what it is? Do they say there are more circumstances? It's complicated. Like, what's the explanation?
4: You know, there is a pretty broad consensus that people get it. They, they feel it. Um, I think that's another moment why this is so powerful, because the story behind Brianna. you know, she was working as an EMT. She was doing what she would ask of any young person that wants to advance her career better themselves. Um, the fact that she was killed in her home at night, she hadn't done anything wrong. The officer shouldn't have even been there she doesn't even know that her life was taken from law enforcement. She's gone, she has no idea that that's what happened to her. And the fact that we see our homes as sacred, our sanctuary, and you know, I, I have fought against Stand Your Ground legislation because of the, the racial um, dynamics with it. But even in this situation where her boyfriend, her partner was standing his ground to defend them against uh, an intruder, they had no idea what was going on, He wasn't able to stand his ground and so i think all of these dynamics are just really making it clear for people to be able to see themselves in that in that moment and they realize it's wrong which creates a chance for us to build new coalitions around okay how do we make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else of any background of any race uh financial status and so that's why we need to seize this moment to build together Look forward for me a little bit
3: um, uh, over the next several years. What would success look like? What would make you smile? What would make you proud? What would make you feel like we made the progress that you think is important and valuable to make? Paint a picture for me. You know, and
4: as I hear sirens in the background, you may not hear them. Um, you know, success over the next... Yep, I, I hear them too. So so we're, we're right in the thick of it, as you can see. Uh, success over the next couple of years, to me, feels like everyone having health care. Um, everyone having um, the means to keep their lights on and to keep a roof over their head. Um, and to know that they can walk down the street and not worry about being gunned down. Um, that they don't have to worry about when they turn the water on, will it irritate their skin? Um, or is it safe to give to their children? Um, or, or the air that we're breathing won't make us sick. Success feels like us being able to live and have peace um, and not feel like our law enforcement are militarized and coming into our neighborhoods to treat us like enemy combatants, that we have the opportunity to not only have good-paying jobs, but that we can own business ourselves and hire our neighbors and invest in our community. Success feels like having politicians that represent us and see us, that are accountable to us. Um, And I see myself having a big part to play in building that success, and and that's why I'm fighting the way I am, because I know we can get there.
3: Charles, what do you say to people who look on the outside, look from the outside? And and they say it with as good a heart as possible. They say, Charles, I like that vision vision that you're painting. I want to see a world where people have more opportunity and and we're treated better and different. But one of the things that they would say to you that they are concerned about is they would say crime, violence, and killing. There's not a white officer on a young black man, but often two people who are black within a community. What would you say to folks who say, what about that? I'm worried about that. Why aren't we talking about that? That's taking more lives than officers
4: are taking." You know, I would tell them that everything I just mentioned before is speaking specifically about that. Um, If we see violence in our community, especially gun violence, as a public health crisis and begin to to address it holistically, as opposed to just trying to be punitive on an individual once an incident has happened, we can actually minimize those instances. And I believe that we can cure um, our communities altogether. We can't diminish the ills of poverty. We can't diminish the, the pain and the trauma from inequity for generations, which is why I'm focused on in, in my organization, Hood to the Holler, ending generational poverty, because that's a public health, public safety issue just as much as anything. When someone pulls a trigger, like when they didn't kill my cousins, there were so many things happening in the environment that even allowed that to be a possibility. We can't ignore those things. We can't ignore the communities have been abandoned and disregarded and that people are dealing with health issues that are not being treated and tended to because they don't have access. We can't ignore the fact that people are down to their last end. We can't ignore the fact that we criminalize a plant um, that has broken up families and that a lot of these people with incredible business acumen are being put in jail instead of being trained and given the tools to succeed. We do those things. We can decrease crime. We can make sure our communities are actually safer. And um, that's why this work is so important. So I would tell them that's exactly what we're talking
3: about. If Vice President Biden wins the presidency, would you want to serve
4: uh, serve in his cabinet? Well, I'm doing so much work on the ground. I know that's where I need to be at. Um, you know, we need to get Trump out of there. And my hope is once uh, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, that he will bring in voices that are responsive to the, the needs of the community. And I would definitely be a loud voice there. Um, but I got a lot of work to do here in Kentucky. And uh, I know I haven't run my last race either. So, I've, so I got a lot, of, a lot on my plate here.
3: Oh, I like what I hear. Okay, how soon, uh, how soon are you going to uh, put the boots back on and get back out there?
4: Oh, man. Well, well once you get started, you know you never stop. Uh, so I, I have not stopped. And, you know, I'm excited about our organization now and getting this off the ground and helping to train a new wave of leaders and uh, res- helping to fight for restoration, registering voters. Um, and so I'm praying on what's next for me politically, but I know we got some big uh, opportunities around the corner here very soon. Uh, so I'll keep you posted. I'll be happy to come back on the show and tell you about it.
3: I love it, I love it. All right, let me hit you with a few other quick ones uh, uh, before we go. Uh, uh, your favorite sport, what's your favorite sport? Basketball. Uh, I guess that makes sense. And now, and now, are you are you a Louisville guy? Are you a Kentucky guy? What, what's your team?
4: Well, you know, it's my hometown, so uh, it's, it's Card Nation where I'm at. And uh, you know now my, my cousin played for UK, won a championship with them. So as long as they're not playing us, I'm okay with them winning. You know, because I'm for Kentucky, the Commonwealth. But when it's when it's go time, I gotta go for the cards. Yeah, you you guys had a guy
3: there uh, a couple years ago named Russ Smith. Yeah. I don't know if you remember him uh, from uh, from from New York, and he was uh, he was a beautiful player. He was my kind of player. Who's your favorite? Uh, who's your favorite player of all time?
4: All time. Oh, that's tough. I don't, I'm not going to adequately answer that, because, uh, but I'm going to say Kobe. Um, I'm not going to give him the all-time ranking, but he is definitely one of my favorite players. Uh, so I grew up in that time when, you know, it was the Kobe and LeBron back and forth. And I love LeBron, but it was, I can't relate to LeBron. He's big. He's strong. Like, he's just naturally probably better than most people when he gets out of bed. But Kobe Bryant, you know, just regular guy that worked his butt off and studied his craft and just became the best because of all that work he put in. I connected to that. So um, I got got a lot of love uh, for Kobe. I try to see myself as uh, the Kobe Bryant in politics. You know, you got to be better than all those people around that are trying to tear regular folks down. You know, we got some wins to get. I love that. The Black Mamba, too. I love
3: that. That's great. That's great. Talk to me a little bit uh, about how you met your wife. How did you uh, how did you
4: meet your wife? Uh, so I met my wife at U uh, of L, University of Louisville, and you know we were we were both active in organizations there, and so we would be at parties together, or we would be at uh, community events uh, doing public service together. And you know when I saw her, I knew that I was going to keep bugging her. You know it was something. She's everything that I'm not, and. Uh, You know i i count my blessings every day that i get to wake up and she's right there um because she can't stand politics you know so but she she believes in me and she knows that i'm following my purpose and so she essentially gets behind me and and pushes and she's the one person that will never puff up my ego she's gonna always shoot it straight (laughs) she's gonna let me know that uh I'm, i'm i'm regular she'll put my feet back down to the ground but her love and support for me is is just something I, I cannot put into words. Um, yeah, we used to party together. Now we now we march in the streets together. I love that.
3: I love that. I love that. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about what you read. What do you uh, what do you love
4: to read? You know what I have been reading uh, before the campaign. Because once the campaign started, what I was reading is a lot of policy uh, material. Um, but the the new Jim Crow. Is a book that I I talk about a lot. Um, I actually talk about mass criminalization a lot in my campaign. That was something that meant a lot to me. And there's a book that came out that really defines why my candidacy was so impactful. Um, It's it's Mitch Please. (laughs) This book was written by my brother Matt Jones uh, here in Kentucky. And he explains in very clear detail how the entire Commonwealth cannot stand Mitch McConnell. But he peels it back a little bit more and tells some of the stories that you never hear. And so uh, that's a book that uh, I, I enjoy. I, I actually am in that book. Uh, so I take some pride in
3: that too. You, you know what? That, that, that's some pure comedy, which leads me to ask you who's your
4: favorite comedian? Oh, man. So, you know, it's, it's between, you know, the Eddie, Eddie uh, Murphy, Martin Lawrence. Like, I grew up on Martin. Uh, Dave Chappelle is another one. This, you know, just hilarious to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love counting Mike Epps. I enjoy Mike Epps too. Yeah, it's, it's hard to pick one. I with more.
3: Actually, who should play you in a movie? Who would you want to play you in a movie? Who should play me? Oh goodness, uh, Will Smith. Nice one. Okay, that's Will Smith. That's a nice one. That's a nice one. Well, we'll have an entanglement conversation another day. But that's a nice one. That's a nice choice. <laughs> that's, that's a good choice. Uh, what did you think of the choice of Kamala Harris?
4: Um, you know, I, I believe that the way that she shows her ability to, to parse the issues, to fight, um, to speak with clarity, it's something that's really important right now. It's been missing in our politics at the national level, and I think that Vice President Biden Uh, was smart in seeing that she could bring things to the table that maybe he can't. Um, I think this is a moment, big picture, where we have to figure out how do we actually push for structural change. And there are a lot of people that are saying that, well, we can't just continue to play this game of just vote against Trump because he's terrible. That's the same message I have about Mitch McConnell. You can't just be against someone, you gotta be for the future. And um, I believe that they have the opportunity to be responsive um, and I also see the, the historic historic uh, moment that we're in to have a woman of color Indian American, Jamaican American, uh, it breaks down a lot of barriers. Um, my little girls can see someone that reflects them. Uh, you know, I am, uh, I am in a fraternity, so Kappa Alpha Psi, um, Senator Harris is an AKA, you know, so I see that dynamic there. Um, so it gives us a chance to fight. And that's really what I'm all about. Regardless of who's on the ballot, how do we keep fighting and move forward? And and we got a shot here.
3: Charles, I want to wrap up with a few uh, big picture questions. One of the things we've been talking a lot about on the show is how people dream fearlessly. Uh, It's not always easy, uh, but it's important not only to dream fearlessly, but bring these dreams alive. What have you learned about dreaming fearlessly?
4: Oh, it's everything. Um, You got to have the courage to lean into your convictions. And you have to dream. You have to continue to see the vision forward and and find those whys that allow you to keep believing when things get tough. Um, I think change happens when we believe enough to push enough. And that's really what my candidacy was all about. I hope I helped to tell that story. Um, There is no fear in me. And, you know, when, when folks ask, well, how could you go against Mitch McConnell? Well, Challenging him is nothing like having my little cousins murdered. It's nothing like seeing my mom you know, go without and us sitting on the bus stop because we don't have transportation and seeing her cry because she couldn't afford to take care of her son. Going against Mr. McConnell pales in comparison to the real struggles we face. Um, so there is no fear. And I hope that we can all begin to dream a little bit more and dream big too.
3: And I know I will. Charles, you have a lot of Fannie Lou Hamer in you, if you uh, if you know who she is, oh, man. and and remember her. I that, do. Thank you. That's a um, uh, uh, that that's that that's a, that's a blessed thing. That that's that's a blessed thing. I hope you I hope you don't lose that. I hope that stays rich and strong in you. Um, uh, last couple questions for you. Um, one of the things we're also talking a lot about is for many people, even though they want change to happen, change happens to them. What can you tell? people who are watching about how to be an agent of change, to be a true change
4: agent? You know, there's so much power in that question because actually the way I've been phrasing it is we are the change and we have to remind ourselves that because the more we look around and we get frustrated and we want things to change, that's when, okay, look in the mirror, we are the change Um, and we are here for a lifetime, however long that is. And that means that we're going to be fighting for change for the course of our lives. And change is the work of generations. And so, you know, while we get frustrated that things don't move as fast as we want them to, we often, we also have to remember that we are the force that's going to make them move. Um, and we continue to lean into that fight. We'll bend the arc. You know, I Hood to the Holler for me is really a testament to that fact that we are the movement. We are the change. We are what we believe in—we are our wildest dreams—and it's hard to always remember how much power we have because life is hard. But we gotta, we gotta stay rooted in that truth.
3: Uh, Charles, what a what a real pleasure! I hope your light keeps shining uh, 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 for so many of us. Um, uh, you know, the world's such a tough place as you described before, and what happens? when you encounter that trauma, when you live through it, as you know, it can break most of us, either in obvious ways or not very obvious ways. And I have, I I used to see with my own mom, she was a light that I think quietly gave a lot of other people confidence to start again. Do you know what I mean? To, yes, you're stuck at that bus stop, but, but okay, this afternoon's a new afternoon. You know what I mean? This morning's so I I hope I hope you I hope you keep all of this good light and that you keep sharing it uh with other people. And uh, uh just know that that I'm among the many who are grateful that uh, uh that you are uh that you're walking that walk. Thank you, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you, brother. It was a true pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to The Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you like this interview, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: important information.